Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Uh, you are listening to the preeminent, the premiere, the only underseen, underwatched horror film podcast that matters. I'm one half of your Matt hosts. My name is Matt Monagle, and I am joined as I am every week, without fail, rain or shine, whether I want him or not, Matt Donato. How you doing, buddy? What are you going to do with that one week when I'm not here? I don't, well, just not going to do an episode. Oh, that's That's a good solution. I don't have a podcast without my buddy Matt Donato. It's just the same intro every time, and it's just like, what about that one time I just don't show up? Sometimes I'm louder than other times. That's sort of how I, I provide some variety. The same intro every time. How dare you? Uh, you know what? I'm done talking about you. I would uh, I would like you to introduce our, our it's a first, actually, for Certified Forgotten, our return guest this week, Donato. Who are we bringing back? Yes, uh, I, I think... The best way to say it is that we felt very bad that uh, we trusted Miss Megan Navarro enough to bring her into the family early enough as we were still trying things out, I'll say. Mm. And uh, Megan had to tackle, was it High Moon, was it called? Howlers, if you prefer. Howlers, High Moon, a uh, werewolf western that this is before we started letting guests pick the movies and we kind of made Megan Navarro take a hit we'll say (laughs) for high moon so without further ado uh you know her from bloody disgusting fangoria consequences sound slash film many other places on the internet she's been a juror on south by southwest as i said a a few times at this point it's megan navarro hello hello so megan uh like donato said i just want to apologize for not letting (laughs) you bring in a movie you were passionate about if if you would like to learn if you're listening and you would like to learn not only more about Megan's taste in horror, low-budget horror westerns, um, you can do that by listening to our Howlers episode. Uh, but also in that episode, I will say on a serious note that, that we had a really great conversation about Megan's early days in the horror genre, You know, growing up as a horror fan, and, and Megan, what you came to love and, and, and came to write about with the horror genre. But um, you know, one thing I, that we didn't really talk about, you know, we talked about everything up to this point in time. We haven't really talked about the future with you. And I know that, that you know, as somebody who's really, really spending a lot of time both in the VOD and theatrical market and really tackling a lot of different releases, let's kind of let's have a conversation about the future, if you don't mind. What do you sure. think? What do you think the future of horror from an audience standpoint looks like? Where, where are they going to get it? You know, we're in a moment right now where Amber Alerts are going off, where all kinds of different <laughs> Sorry, things are bad. happening. <laughs> I'm leaving that. I, this is my edit. I'm leaving that in the podcast. Sure. Um, we're in, we're in a time right now where there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future of theatrical releases distribution looks like. So what are your feelings on that? Where do you land on the whole discussion? I I think that the easiest way to, to sum it up is that we're in a state of nobody has a freaking clue. Nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, VOD is is going to be the thing that carries us through for a while, and it's probably going to be a long-term future. I mean, I think that during this time, people are going to have to get super creative. Um, I think VOD allowed for um, more independent filmmakers to, to enter the market. Um, and I think that that's going to kind of expand exponentially during this time. I obviously miss theatrical releases tremendously in big budget movies, but I don't think we're going to see them anytime soon. I think when the theaters finally open up and you get all of those backlogged releases, money to to fund future projects isn't going to be quite there yet. And there's going to be a massive uh, period of like, I, I don't even know, depression period. What do yeah, you know? I, I would call it a depression period. And I yeah. mean, I, I think the question that I would almost ask too is like, did horror fans kind of get lucky in this scenario? Because horror's always been a budget-friendly genre when you do it right. And I like the first thing I'll bring up is, I mean, how many VOD horror titles would hit anyway, even if there was no pandemic and theaters were open? Yeah. The horror genre still is filled with VOD titles. I'm still reviewing at least, honestly, three to four movies a week. And I'm not saying they're good. And I'm not oh, saying yeah. they're all winners. <laughs> But I, I think in a way, horror was the one genre that was almost like prepared for this. And then when you just like you said, Megan, when you start talking about, you know, the depression period, because, yeah, theaters are meant for bigger budget films and theaters are meant for that experience. But still, I mean, 
a horror film is not going to operate on a Fast and the Furious kind of budget. I think where the Fast and the Furious might hold out until theaters can be filled again, you know, a horror film like Antlers, you know, when does that hit VOD? Like in my mind, the question is, when does horror start to just accept the VOD fate? Uh, Like, you know, I think The Invisible Man was more a victim of circumstance because it hit the theater and then it had to basically adjust once the pandemic hit. But for other things that, you know, again, like an Antlers to me, it had momentum going up to that April release. And all of a sudden, boom, it hits a wall. Do you do you think one of those films is going to break the barrier soon between like Candyman, Antlers, something like that? I don't think Candyman or something like Saw. I definitely don't think A Quiet Place Two, which was literally supposed to come out before you know, right as this shutdown is happening, I can't really see them going to VOD. Uh, something like Antlers for sure. Something smaller. Um, but something like A Quiet Place 2 that had this big star studded. I mean, even what was, what do you think the budget is? 30 million on A Quiet Place 2? Bigger? Uh, I think I would I th- say in the, in the realm of that. Yeah. I think something like that is going to have a harder time. But again, like you said, if there's ever an audience to carry it forward, no matter where it lands, it's probably going to be the horror fandom. So it's, it's like, I don't know. But I will say that I truly miss the theatrical experience. Oh, don't get me wrong. I miss the theatrical too. Uh, and, you know, today, I, I don't know if this will be timely when this episode comes out, but today someone tweeted about uh, Scare Package because it was just announced the Scare Package is hitting uh, Ju- Shutter in June. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wanted to see it at a festival I was going to attend. And of course, festivals kind of got put on hold and, you know, all these films out there that we're going to have that festival life and, you know, maybe get some hype again, just hit a wall. And it's like, what do we do now? And it's really cool to see something like Shudder swoop in and rescue a film like Scare Package. And I tweeted about it and say, like, ah, this is so cool. I get to see Scare Package in a month anyway. Like everything is lining up. And someone tweeted uh, in, in response and said, you know, I saw this in a, in a theater. I got to see it at its first festival premiere. And it was just so much fun to see with a rowdy crowd. And like, yeah. I hope that experience still translates to VOD. And I sat there and I thought about it and I was like, ah, oh, shit, man. Like, I really would love to see Scare Package with a crowd. Like, it's a meta horror comedy. And, it, you know, I, I 100% and I think I'm going to sit there just going like, ha, huh, this is funny. But yeah. my God, I wish I saw this with a crowd. Yeah. But, you know, speaking of festival, it's going to be, I think, the first big test um, is the Chattanooga Film Festival going virtual. Yes. So I think that that's going to be a pivotal moment to figure out, you know, how things could look like in the future. Is it going to be an abysmal failure or is that a viable option? And if so, does that mean Fantastic Fest is going to try that this year? Like TIFF doesn't want to cancel, but I don't know that they'll have a choice. So it'll be, yeah, I think a lot's weighing on the shoulders of Chattanooga. And we'll it. know by the time this this episode drops if Chattanooga worked or not. So yeah. to oh, our to our future selves, I hope we're happier then. <laughs> well, I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up, Megan, because I wanted to talk about that. You are a I, I'm going to say you're a horror film festival expert, right? Like you have traveled for so many of these, you've participated in a bunch of them. You understand kind of the, the landscape and the layout um, as a member of the press and somebody that has participated from the jury standpoint. What elements of a film festival do you think can be replicated online? What are the things that we can do as you know online film festivals like Chattanooga that will not be decreased from missing that all important like midnight two beers in experience of watching a horror movie together? Like what's the stuff that's going to work, do you think? I mean, I think that there will be a seamless transition as far as buzz. I mean, it's it's a little bit different in the sense that you won't be in that same crowd feeding off of the energy levels that probably leads to some of those, those hype um, for certain films. But the way we communicate that hype is all online, you know, our reviews and, and going to Twitter and, you know, just gushing about a film. I don't think that that will change at all. I mean... It's not like we, I sat at Sundance and started screaming to the mountains that like, oh, this movie's amazing and you guys could hear me. Like, I think that the that's the one thing that I, I can't imagine would change too much. The It's just the in-person, you know, that I think 
is going to be very different. And trying to focus on a movie free from distraction, you know, from your couch. Yeah. And I think about, we were talking to Meredith on the uh, Ojuju episode and we were talking about how she first watched this uh, Nigerian zombie film with a midnight crowd at Fantasia. Mm-hmm. And sh- her experience was the rowdy, everyone laughing, everyone reacting to the film together mm-hmm. and like bonding together over what became a fun midnight experience for everyone. Where, you know, I watched a Juju by myself just on Quelly, which is the uh, VOD service it's now on. And to me, it was a serious movie. And I think the tone of some films is really going to switch and change based on seeing it alone versus seeing it with an audience. And I think that might help and hurt some films in the future because, again, I, one, of, one of my quote-unquote unpopular opinions is I think One Cut of the Dead is just okay. But the difference is <laughs> everyone that loves it saw it with a crowd, saw it at Fantastic, at Fantasia, something like that, where I just watched a screening link of it. So yeah. I, I think there's gonna, there's something to say about that and there's something to say about the way that we're going to receive some of these films that maybe could have been cult overnight successes at a festival where the crowd goes wild for it. At, as Monagle said, two beers in or, you know, 17 beers, whatever. <laughs> um, and the reaction is just going to be a little different, I think. I agree. I definitely think how your environment is, your mood, um, what the crowd levels are like definitely factors into how you approach a movie. But at the same time, it's it's kind of a an open-ended question because every film, film festival has its own distinct personality, you know? And so you go to Fantastic Fest and it's totally a fest of, of bonding and camaraderie and hanging out with people. It's like the most social festival ever. Whereas you go to Sundance and it's kind of a snooty festival. Like people are openly on there. If you're at a press screening, people are allowed to be on their phones or their um, laptops because they're not all there as press. They're there as industry and making sales and they're not fully committed. And it's kind of like, or you have the rich people who live in Park City who just happen to be there because they have a discount badge and don't really care. So it's like, it's one of those things where, yeah, I fully agree how how crowd can in the setting can totally change, you know, like you don't like one cut of the dead because you didn't get to feed off of the energy levels of a crowd, but that also changes fest to fest. So yeah. it's kind of a yeah, how much does that weigh in? I'm not sure. Yeah, no, that's a good point cuz that was my uh, Toronto experience when I did a TIFF for I did it one year where, mm-hmm. you know, I, I switched it up from Fantastic because I was kind of like, all right, I got experience, Tiff. I got to see what this is all about because, like, uh, my other critic friends keep talking about it and I go to Fantastic. And I went to Tiff and it was the same thing. You're stuck in the industry screenings as press and you have people talking on their phones, like, during the movie. They keep whipping them out. There's absolutely no – there's no kind of theater etiquette, I guess I would say. And I never went back. And I will always go back to Fantastic Fest. It will always be my pick. But the same thing, you know, will Fantastic Fest, if it's just a solely online festival and if TIFF, TIFF does the same thing, it becomes a thing of like, well, shit, who, who's going to pay me more to cover which movies? And the unfortunate thing is TIFF wins out in that sense. Right. Well, let me ask, because you brought up the point of like, you know, talking about the online experience for people that are going and attending and how each festival is a little different. I mean, historically, if you look at something like a Sundance or a Cannes Film Festival, there is an element of um, exclusion in terms of who gets to go. You know, only certain publications are probably going to get accredited. Even within that, only certain people might get sent to the publication based on seniority or factors like that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we talk about a lot with Certified Forgotten that you know very well is the idea that the reason a lot of these movies have been forgotten, the reason a lot of these movies didn't get a lot of Rotten Tomatoes reviews is because there was some element of industry gatekeeping, right? Like mm-hmm. tiny horror sites, smaller horror sites in the mid-2010s weren't getting accredited. So even though they were re- reviewing the stuff that we were talking about, it wasn't treated on the same level. You know, they weren't their reviews weren't being published. And so these movies were getting negative reviews from larger publications, maybe more positive reviews from more genre-specific publications what do you think will change about the coverage of some of these films if suddenly those doors are open and you know a lot more publications are being able to send a lot more critics to these festivals who might not be able to go otherwise? I think that's a interesting question because we still don't know how this works. Does, uh, does 
the because Chattanooga is doing it virtual, but they still have limited capacities. So does that mm-hmm. also translate to limited like who they grant press access to? I don't know, but I would assume that the you're correct and they would expand it. Um, but I mean, it's kind of a catch 22. I think on the one hand you will allow a lot more people to cover a film, but in the same breath with a lot more content comes a lot more things getting buried or quickly forgotten. If that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, no, I was just going to weigh in. It's the whole thing of it's a little bit of exclusivity where you want your film to get a few good reviews out of a festival, but you want enough reviews left for the theatrical release or the distribution cycle so that you can get more hype and waves and waves where, yeah, if every publication is allowed to review a film at a festival, they have no reason to review it later on. I I think that's a very good point. I don't know how it's going to get handled because online does give access to the masses. You know, anyone with a blog can write about stuff and it becomes a thing of like, Oh, well we don't have to put them in a theater. They don't have to take up seats for paying guests. Screw it. You know, more hype for the festival. But in turn that then makes these films, it's less of an experience when they get reviews upon reviews out of, out of a festival, maybe even the size of Chattanooga. So I think I I agree. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how Chattanooga plays out. Um, because I mean, I can tell you as of today, I was just, again, tweeting about scare package. I'm like, Oh, I can't wait to see it on shutter. And then like the Chattanooga Twitter just tweeted at me. They're like, or you can email this email address and we'll give you press accreditation. I was like, <laughs> I, I didn't even like, I'm not even reaching out for it. And you're just yeah. coming to me saying, do you want to cover my festival? Like, yeah, it, it's interesting. I got, I got an email today saying, Hey, you want, you yeah. want press? And I'm like, okay, sure. But yeah, like what you're saying is on that note, um, the first and foremost, point of a film festival is these films um are seeking distribution how does this type of thing affect because the bottom line is they want their product to be viable and if everybody has seen it who's going to acquire it and distribute it so you have to have some level of of limited inclusion on on who you're showing this film to otherwise it's no longer a, a worth a worthy investment to a distributor yeah and i mean that's what that's why the fantasia, amazon prom thing yeah exactly and i was going to say fantasia doing it the opposite way of saying well guess what this is now geo-locked it's just going to be a canadian festival and again there's ticket sales and there's things of that nature so i think there are ways to do it with the public i think it's more just with press and uh how a festival is going to view press as well and if they're going to say nope we still have a list we still only have people we want to bring in versus ah screw it let them all in they can all write about our stuff <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I mean, they, I did see that they are, you know, a lot of the proceeds for tickets are going back to, to the filmmakers, which is great. That's not what Amazon and South by did. But yeah, I mean, I think you do have to be very careful because you, you don't want these films that are now easily um, pirated to, to get out either. So you have to protect the filmmakers. Right. You have to protect, you know, your your company as a fest. So it's a uh, it's a very tricky thing that opens up all sorts of questions. Questions well, that we don't have answers to. We don't. We have some answers. We have some. Yeah. Um, last festival, since this has been a really good conversation about festivals, um, question I want to ask, you know, the the one Donato, you started this conversation by saying that in a lot of ways, horror fans were uniquely suited to the new environment, right? Because we expect low budgets to a certain extent, and we're more comfortable with the genre than we are with the elements that you think of. You need a wide release film, stars, special effects, that kind of stuff. So a question for both of you then, do you think that the, the fact that horror festivals have been more open to repertory screenings than mainstream festivals do you think that positions us well because i you know usually i think of trebecca in new york and other film festivals usually they have like one or two high profile we're going to bring the cast back together we're going to bring the filmmaker in. he's going to talk about it but this is the only one of these we're doing at the festival whereas most genre festivals that i've been to they really they'll open the door for a lot of different stuff and to them it's really just about the ability to see a movie and talk about a movie afterwards, even if it's a classic horror film or, or a trash horror film, you know, some shot on VHS thing that, that has never been released in a market and isn't particularly good, but the conversations that go alongside that are important because that's the premiere, the opportunity to talk about it. Do you think horror in particular is going to flourish in the VOD market because of the ability to go back and pull old stuff equally with pulling new stuff? 
I don't know necessarily about VOD, but I mean, again, using Chattanooga as an example, I'm sure that's getting old by now, but um, they're partnering with vinegar syndrome. So you have boutique labels that specialize in this stuff. So it's kind of like a I scratch your back type situation. Like they're showing some older repertory screenings that that they can then turn around and sell on Blu-rays. So I don't know about VOD, but for sure, like there there's a viable market this way. Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't, sorry, I don't mean VOD in the sense that you buy a rent, but like gotcha. the, the fact that these festivals, you know, people like Vinegar Syndrome are experts at getting rights, at weird rights to old movies too. So if you partner with somebody like that, there's never really been a tapped market for like one day online limited seating streaming of stuff. That's not really, a, you know, not really a distribution model that anybody's chased. But if there's a way to turn that into something that's viable with related to film festivals, you know, people like Vinegar Syndrome can probably be the ones to figure it out. You know, well, and I also, I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, What I was going to say is that what I am seeing, what I'm hoping some people pick up and run with is that now is the perfect time for curated content. Um, You know, Alamo kind of dabbled with bringing Terror Tuesday and Weird Wednesdays to VOD that would come with literally like opening clips and an intro to what you would get like kind of a, a online version of what you would get if you had attended Alamo Draft House. And I thought that was brilliant. And I also find myself turning towards like Criterion Channel lately because they do curate what they put on their their platform. And then a lot of times it comes with a lot of videos that are, you know, here's interviews, here's all of this backstory. Like curated content, um, we're, horror fans in general are easy market for like, we're already on the same page for, for VOD. But if somebody can fine tune it and actually curate that content, like I think that, that that's a niche market that's not yet tapped it's, yeah. there's a potential and i think too like bringing back again bringing back chattanooga because it's yeah. the only example we have right now i'm yeah. sorry we keep repeating it but it is the first <laughs> it, it's the first step into this world and what i noticed looking at their uh list of features this year that is the online version is number one they have a sparse amount i would say of premieres obviously it's just the nature of where what we're in right now and people not wanting to jump in and throw their film uh online for an online festival but what i noticed is just as you said before megan they're partnering with vinegar syndrome and they have these wackadoo titles like there's this 80s horror movie about a viking who like is like a viking spirit with like bear claws and bear fangs that starts hunting people and like am i tuning in for that a hundred thousand percent yes and but the thing is, it's kind of genius and it's kind of great because if we're looking towards the future and if we're talking about the future and if there is a future for horror festivals and this thing, you know, this pandemic we're in keeps people from creating content for a little bit, we're going to need filler for these festivals if they're going to continue. We're going to need screenings and these repertory screenings of the rights suddenly come up for, the, again, rando Viking bear movie. I've never seen it before. It's new to me. It sounds insane. I'll still attend an online festival if there's a few premieres and there's a ton of rep stuff that's still coming to me that's new. Um, because I also did see that Chattanooga has a few movies that have already released. Uh, they've actually been distributed. Like The Wave is one of them. They're mm -hmm. showing Wave as part of the program. But I mean, it came out earlier this year and it's been rentable for months now. And it's kind of like, all right, so I'm, I'm buying your ticket package, but like I'm not going to watch half these films that have already come out. Like there's there's no, not to be mean about it, but like there's no need right. to see those. So as long as there's a balance between the few new films they can program, whatever they can get from a vinegar syndrome or, you know, dig from the grave and unearth and be like, listen, this is still new content. I'm still there as long as those three parts are there. But if it becomes something more where it's like, a scant amount of premieres and then content that you've seen before and that's available to rent online, that's when you start to worry. Right. But I also think that that's also why they have an obscene amount of like, I, I don't know how they're doing it, Zoom or something, but panels, a lot of mm -hmm. discussions with, with well-known filmmakers or people in the industry. And I'm actually into that. That kind of goes in line with what I'm saying with uh i would like to see more curated content you know when when people go to film festivals journalists go to film festivals that come out like people are looking to you to to see what they should 
be anticipating and it kind of in the same thing you know you want you're gonna have to find some way to get curated content i think that's kind of the the untapped potential out of all of this so what you're saying megan is there should be an online certified forgotten festival For a weekend, we bring back everyone who's had an episode with us and they can host their movie and they can show it and tell people where to stream it. And then we'll host a whole online festival for a weekend. There you go. But you have to figure out the technical side. Did you you done that? No. (laughs) No. Yeah. Uh, I just did that in the millisecond that I came up with that idea. Did you do it? You've been sitting on this idea for at least a week. Absolutely. I have. We'll talk about that later in the DMs. All right. Cool. Donato knows very well that my internet is not up to that task. <sighs> well, okay. You know, I, again, Megan, you were our first repeat guest. And when Donato and I were talking, we were like, boy, I hope we, I hope we have enough to have a conversation beforehand. Turns out we could have talked about that for another 30 minutes easily, yeah. <laughs> but um, we got We got to talk about the movie you brought. So when we come back, we're going to reposition this conversation. We're going to talk about one of those titles that probably should find its way into a future repertory screening. And that is 2010's Burning Bright. Stick with us. We'll be back in a sec. All right, so for an actual pick, for a movie she got to pick, which is a big difference from her last experience, Megan brought us the 2010 film Burning Bright. It is a film directed by Carlos Brooks, written by Christine Coyle Johnson and Julie Prendivieu-Rue. It stars Brianna Evigan, Charlie Tehan, and the ever-wonderful Garrett Dillahunt. And it is, and I swear, this is going to sound like I'm describing a Hallmark thriller. I swear to God, it's it. stick with us. It is a movie about a young woman and her autistic brother who get trapped in a house in the middle of a hurricane with a tiger. I know, I know, I know what you're saying. I swear to God, it's a good one. I'm going to tell you that right now. So um, there really isn't, like normally I'd describe the plot more, but that that's it. That's the movie. Hurricane, tiger, siblings. Megan, what made you think of this movie? Why was this the one that you brought for us? Okay, so I was thinking, what would be a movie that is very me, like, I guess my brand? And what would be a movie that I think would not be torture for both of you to sit through? Um, Because I had a couple of ideas, but I I really don't feel like this one. This is one that I like a lot. I'm a huge fan of creature features, aquatic horror. Now, this is not aquatic horror, but Hurricane, I'm loosely tying it, whatever. but yeah, it's it's kind of like in an age where we're hot on the heels of Tiger King and we're a year removed from Crawl. This is the precursor to both and not many people know of its existence. And I feel like that should be corrected. So I'm going to ask Donato in a moment to talk about the Tiger King connection. Um, but I, I let's start. I, no, let's actually start there. So this this is, you know, and if you go back and look at tweets, the first thing I do whenever I watch something is I filter by people I follow and I enter the movie title and a couple of times, both about Crawl, actually, and about Tiger King, Megan, you were out there saying, if you like that, you're going to love this. So what what makes this, Donato, is the only person in this podcast episode who has seen Tiger King, what makes this such a natural jumping off point for that audience? I mean, it, I, I feel like I want to say something that might give away an ending subplot that's revealed. And am I allowed to do that immediately, or because it all ties together to Tiger King and Burning Bright in my mind? And let me let me preface this by saying that there are as many Tiger actors in this movie as there are actor actors, and if you can't figure out who's doing what and where and when within the first ten minutes of the movie, horror just might not be your genre. So, Donato, go I, ahead. Okay. In any case, well, I mean, I'm going to bring in the fact that, like, number one, the Garrett Dillahunt character who is creating his own safari amusement at his house with living, breathing, exotic, contained animals that he's buying from fucking meatloaf. And (laughs) one of them is a tiger named Lucifer. And the tiger is very violent. And the way that Garrett Dillahunt treats the tiger, not so far off from what we've seen in, you know... Joe Exotic's world and 
What I want to tie in more, though, is, you know, you talk about the hallmark aspect of it with the autistic uh, brother and sister and, you know, sister taking care of the autistic brother stuck in a house with this tiger. Why they are stuck in the house is more closely tied to the themes of, of Tiger King, in my mind, than just a tiger and a tiger owner. Because why they are stuck in the house has to do with, like, it's insane to say, but there is a murder plot. There's literally a murder subplot going on in Burning Bright. And that is honestly more of a connection to Tiger King because of the whole Joe Exotic, Carol Baskin, did Carol kill somebody? Like, it's insane how close they are that Garrett Dillahunt would try to use a tiger to get money from a payout. And again, I don't want to say any more because, again, it all just sounds insane. But both of these films are so, are so thematically overcomplicated. And I'm talking about the actual documentary. And I'm talking about Burning Right at the same time. Because you sit there going, this couldn't possibly be real life. One of them isn't, but one of them is. And they're both equally far-fetched. Yep. <laughs> Are they, uh, is Tiger King take place in Florida? Uh, parts. Parts? All right. There, there's another connection for you. This is set in Florida. Yeah. It, it's, it's very eerily insane. Because, again, you have the illegal buying and trading of ex- exotic big cats. You have big cats being kept in captivity that shouldn't be. You have the crazy off-the-wall owner. Uh, you know, unfortunately, Garrett Dillahunt does not have multiple male love interests, as Joe uh, Exotic does. But it's, you know, it's still convoluted enough where you're going, why is murder involved in this? There's enough with the cats and the people. Why do the people have to have murder plots? <laughs> so, Megan, you... um. You mentioned kind of at the top of this that that you're a big fan of creature features. So I think I think Crawl is a great touch point for this. We'll get into that in a moment. But what makes, in your mind, a good creature feature? And what is it about Burning Bright that delivers on that? Like what, what makes this, you know, because there are, we've all seen bad creature features. It's a hard thing to articulate right. sometimes about why the jump scares don't work or why we don't care about the characters. So what is it about Burning Bright and its approach that makes it a good creature feature? And what is that to you? Um, first and foremost, obviously the creature has to be, I mean, they, it's a creature feature for a reason because they are Mm. essentially the star and burning bright does something that you never see. It's a real tiger. Um, granted they don't, you can tell in certain shots that the actors are not actually in the same space as the tiger, but they pull it off really well considering it's, it's a lower budget indie effort. Um, but it's a real, well, it's like you said earlier, it's three different tiger actors for this one lucifer tiger but uh most creature features it's like a rubber suited alligator or even a cg alligator or whatever monster slash eco terror animal it is but it has to be good and so like plausible scary in some point um to sell your creature feature and i think this one does one it's unique you don't really see creature features be- featuring tigers very often um it's definitely a terrifying animal set up really well by meatloaf's uncredited <laughs> little intro story it's um, so good it's such a good intro it's such a good intro and so the story already sets the tone right off the bat like you don't even need it's the whole way that they they use this like they they sell you this great little story that sets up the the scariness the intimidation factor of this monster before you even see it but the other key is the tension like you either have to have in horror in slashers creature features whatever tension and suspense are huge keys um in lieu of a body count like you know we as horror fans we love a huge body count but this is only two actors from most of the films so you have to have suspense and this one does it really really well so yeah good monster good suspense and that's kind of like the simple distillation of what makes a good creature feature yeah and i think I, I think uh playing off of that i'm gonna play with shark movies really quickly mm. i know you know that they're not this is a tiger and uh but to bring sharks in the picture that's why when you talk about shark attack movies the best ones are the ones that you can't really tell it's a fake shark and the best ones are you know you see something like deep blue sea where okay maybe it doesn't look super real at times but the fact that they have a giant prop shark going on and you know ll cool j can actually hit something 
versus the movies where it's a really fake shark and you you know you can tell the actor doesn't even see anything on the green screen it's just basically someone flailing wildly yeah like that's the biggest selling point and yeah 100 percent, i agree with you that burning bright you can you can see the digital imprints at times you can see the times that obviously a small child cannot be right in front of a tiger's paw that is swiping at him it's right. just not you can't do that but to to the film's credit you still see the photorealistic tiger and the times when the tiger can be there it's uh, it is a specimen like it is a beautiful creature i i it's so cool to see that on screen and not see it dulled down or diluted mm-hmm. and you know it, to say what you were going to say before megan and you know said in different words it's so refreshing when a creature feature features the creature yes yes agreed yeah and i think one thing that i would also add to that is you know we talk about the a lot of contemporary horror in terms of cgi or puppets but, you know, for years and years and years, and we've all seen these, like for years, any creature feature horror film would use a tremendous amount of stock footage, right? Like mm-hmm. you could always tell when they were like cutting, like the guy falls in the water and then they cut to a shot of a shark, like eating something, but it's not the guy and it's not the same body of water. And you can kind of tell, but it's cool because there's no other way to get that shot. One of the things that is immediately so impressive about Burning Bright is, yeah, the actors and the, the tiger might not be in the set at the same time. But that tiger is always on the set. There is not any stock footage they could cut to because there's no way, you know, there's not some small production company out there that's like, what if we have a tiger walking around a house? Do you think anybody would buy that footage? Is that just <laughs> going to be like B-roll for every movie? Every time you see the tiger, it is the tiger on that set. And it lets you know, it's just, it's more immersive because it lets you know that they went through the process of making that, making that physical environment real because they, you just can't fake it. Mm-hmm. No, it's such a it's such a pretty kitty. <laughs> Very, it's a glorious beast. No, I was gonna say just to go off Matt's point. You know, I just watched uh, the Reef uh, a few days ago. I'm just trying to catch up on like summer horror flicks before summer hits, and that was the, the biggest problem I had with it. Is I like I saw reviews online saying, "Oh my god, like the sharks look so real," and you know it's refreshing to see that, but what Matt described with the B roll is exactly what happens. You know, you have the divers and the swimmers who are just floating in water looking around like, Oh my God, where's the shark? Where's the shark? And then like someone will look underwater and then it cuts to like a natural geographic footage of like a shark swimming in the distance. It's kind of like, okay. So like there's such a barrier between the film we're watching and then these like intercut little, basically it's like a clip show and it it's so frustrating. So yes, the fact that burning bright, you know, does the same thing that, again, like, you know, Crawl does, except obviously without real crocodiles or alligators. I forget which they are. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, like, can we just talk about the insane similarities between Burning Bright and Crawl? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. It's, it's definitely like I you think of Crawl. If you've seen Crawl and you've seen Burning Bright, you're like, this is almost the same movie, you know, and when you distill it down to its skeleton, it's two people stuck in a house with a apex predator because there's a hurricane raging. That's the same movie. And the suspense is there in both. I mean, I do think Alexandra Aha is a master of suspense and he sustains it for far longer. So I would give him the edge there. But I mean, this is like a little indie movie that nobody's seen and it just finds such creative ways to to make this live magnificent beast like scary for for a good chunk of the movie. Yeah, and it's crazy to think that you know Burning Bright walked so Crawl could crawl very ferociously. <laughs> yeah, but like you get what I'm saying though. It's crazy to think that how similar these films could be down to the natural disaster. You know, down to the fathers being in the picture. You know, just swap out an autistic child for a dog and, you know, you just have a different movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not often where I can pinpoint the exact moment where a movie won me over. But with this one, I did. <laughs> and I think I no, I, I think you guys will probably agree that it is one shot. It is the shot where she's crawled into the laundry space, the like the little laundry chute and the one bead of sweat drops on the ground and the tiger. I don't know which of the three it was, but the tiger looks down, licks the sweat and then slowly looks up. And you're just like, how did how did you get that? Like, yeah. and then the entire attack sequence that follows that, where the tiger is like trying to crawl up the laundry chute to get here, you're just like, you're not supposed to do this with the resources you have. This isn't something 
You know, like this is a 2010 Lionsgate movie. This is not something you're supposed to be able to do. And this whole scene is like tense as shit. Yeah, I know 100%. Uh, that is the exact moment when I first saw this movie that I'm like, yeah, this is good. Because you're you're right. It is very Hallmark out there in the first 30 minutes as it's setting it up. And when you're first watching it, you're like, why is this so elaborate and like insane? But I also, in hindsight, kind of appreciate the time it takes to to get you to to know these characters because, you know, the the way that they use the tigers is amazing. But I also want to give a lot of credit to Brianna Evignan. I can't say her name. I apologize. But um, the, our lead actress, she sells the hell out of it, mm-hmm. you, especially when you know she's not actually right there with the uh, the tiger. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was just gonna say I was impressed uh, with you know, that. I actually gave a little bit of a shit about the emotional arc uh, between her and her brother, uh, because, you know, not only does she have to fight a tiger throughout this whole scenario, and not only does she have to keep another human safe, but that other human cannot make the right decision at most times. And that other human needs someone to basically get them through this scenario. So now it just adds a different level of complexity to the survival scenario because number one, you cannot predict a wild animal. I mean, that animal is going to do whatever it wants and there's there's nothing you can do to stay one step ahead. Granted, we know it's just going to kill you in this scenario. I mean, that, that is the tiger's impetus. It wants to eat. It is hungry. It has been starved for two weeks. So it is out for food. But you also don't know what the brother's going to do at any moment. Because whether he's going to fly off the handle, whether he's going to demand breakfast while the tiger is like battering down a door, all of these things make it so much more complicated. And, you know, I, I, again, I say the word complicated, but I kind of mean that in a good way here because it adds another level of stakes to an already very intense, very thrilling film. So I was impressed by the end when I actually did kind of say like, all right, there's a moment where our lead heroine can leave the brother behind. And not only would that be a sign of her going on to her new future, uh, because if we want to go back to the beginning really quickly, there's a whole little drama between her going to college and she doesn't want to leave the little brother with the stepfather, blah, blah, blah. So there's a moment where she can leave. There is a moment where she can say, sorry, little bro, uh, you're tiger food. I'm going to go live my life. And I kind of said, you know what? Don't do it. I, I was like so kind of on the fence about it too. I was like, you know what? No, just go. He's done. He's done. Don't worry about it. But um, I actually cared. And that was weird to me. Because it takes the time for all the crazy setup. Um, it takes the time to give her an internal character arc, you know, from I'm grieving over the loss of my mother who's, you know, overdosed on her prescription pills intentionally. Um to I, I have to get my life back on track and get back to college before I lose my scholarship. And I want to pass my brother off because he's a low functioning autistic. Um, you know, he's, he's not somebody that understands danger. He's set in a routine. He's not very uh, verbal. She's frustrated with him too. So it's like this whole internal struggle that's going on during all of this that I sincerely appreciate because I do love crawl, but that's literally like, Hey dad, you need to get help. And then by the end of it, they're out of there or, you know, like there's, there's no real arc for her. It's like, we're estranged. We love each other. The end. Yeah. Meanwhile, in burning bright, you have a dream sequence where the sister smothers the brother with a pillow. So just to know how everyone feels that that happens. So like, you know, and it's kind of going like, that's dark, man. You know, to add that on top of a killer kitty, there's a lot going on here that is under the surface, but also in plain sight at the same time. It's it's baffling at points and you go, how is this coming together? But it does. Yeah. And it's done by people who are like, I mean, Carlos Brooks has done two movies and this was the last one and he's not done anything since. The writers, the screenwriters haven't done anything either since then. Like... These people, it's very little experience to pull off something so well put together is pretty remarkable. 
Yeah, I want to give I want to give a shout out specifically there to to the screenwriters, um, Christine Coyle Johnson and Julie Prendivaru. I spent God, I must have spent two hours trying to find any kind of discussion online um, and offline about the way that Tom, the younger brother, is depicted in the film. Because you know, I don't know anyone in my life personally that has autism. I don't know, especially um, the movie makes a really big part of that is is the physical component. Tom cannot be touched, and if he is touched. Um, he melts down a little bit and that affects their ability to obviously to hide from a tiger. And I, I, I don't know, I don't understand the psychology of that well enough to say that is true or that is not true. But what it does do in the course of the film is it creates a scenario in which you are never using the child as a plot device. Uh, Tom remains incredibly constant throughout the film. He's not an obstacle. Uh, his sister comes to see him as not an obstacle over the course of the movie, recognizes what he has to offer her in the relationship. But it is it is the scenario in which I don't think I've ever seen a horror film where one of the characters was was detached, was unable to participate in the actions around them. Usually, you know, you watch a kid in a horror movie, there's a moment where they make the wrong choice or they go into a room they shouldn't have gone into or they make a loud noise or something when they shouldn't. And like all of those scenes have been scrubbed from the film. What you have is somebody who is ill-prepared to be a caretaker of somebody with autism who doesn't understand how to navigate the world that Tom lives in in order to communicate with him effectively and is doing her best. You know, the 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 image that strikes me in this movie so much is the the palms up motion for stop you know she she doesn't touch him she doesn't grab him whenever they're in a dangerous situation she holds her palm up to him just you know about a foot away and that is her sign to let him to let him know that he needs to stop there is so much intent there that you know if it if it is a you know would it be a um, something that would be celebrated on academia.edu or these depictions that would be considered positive or not, I can't say for sure. But what it does do is it makes you feel like this is not a movie that is treating this as a disability or something that you need to throw off lightly. It's not something that is getting cheap plot points out of Tom's autism. It is something that is inherent to this character and inherent to those relationship and everything builds around that. It's it's a lot. It's really, it's a lot for, again, for something that shouldn't be this intentional and thoughtful. And like the yeah. hand motion, it's funny because like the hand motion for stop, like you're saying, where, you know, she just puts her hand out and the whole stop and, you know, it's a very, it's a grand gesture. So Tom sees it. It's kind of like a lion tamer, like a tiger tamer alone because the way they might, you know, control, like they're I, I just like all these things are like connected in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. But, I, you know, I would say, Definitely Tom not making the wrong decision, but I think there are still one or two instances where <laughs> you have the sister have to jump through tremendous hoops just to make sure he doesn't die. And the one scene I'm thinking about is when Tom, as he does every day, Tom watches a video of him and his mother because fond memories, mom left me, these kind of connections. So as the tiger is basically on their ass and chasing them, Tom just kind of wanders off frame and just turns the TV on and sits down like nothing is happening. And that realization when his sister is just like, you know, he really doesn't know what's going on and her having to take over and not like navigate that scenario of knowing that she can't just turn the TV off. She can't just grab him and move him because that would cause a greater scenario. So she has to somehow get the tiger away from Tom as he is just watching TV and it, like that is such it's such a scene that sticks with you for all those reasons that you were saying that. Going off of what Monagle was saying, though, you know, for Charlie Tehan's role, like he's very nonverbal. I think he has certain words like eat, but a yeah. lot of his performance is obviously all physical. So I think he, you know, as an actor, I imagine you have to find different ways to build your character, which granted he doesn't have much of an arc at all. But I do think it's more subtle in the sense that she's going through all this and he begins not wanting to be touched whatsoever. But then he, you know, by the end, you're kind of a little moved by the fact that he is allowing her to touch him a lot more. I mean, she's doing it to keep him safe, but it's this transition of like, don't touch me at all to him trying to throw her off when she's trying to like keep brace him against a tiger in the room to, you know, he's a lot more comfortable and he may not have an awareness, but that also kind of speaks volumes to the beautiful evolution that this dire situation has done for their relationship.
Yeah. All while a tiger is literally banging yeah, their again. doors yes. down. Yes. Every <laughs> single door. Yes. This magnificent tiger. I want to talk, oh man, I want to talk to you about uh, Garrett Dillahunt because he's a gift. We are lucky yes. to have him. Yes. Uh, he is one of the only actors that can be like weirdly handsome and also grotesque at the same time. It's a hard thing to articulate, but there it is. Yeah. And he is, he's not in this movie a, a ton because again, a lot of the movie is the two siblings in the house and the tiger, but the stuff that he does when he's on screen, are, it's so fucking interesting. So uh, Megan, you know, Garrett Dillahunt, talk to me about him. I, I love him. Um, he's like you said, he's kind of a jack of all trades. I, I, he makes me think this is the more sinister version of his character from Raising Hope. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. saw that. Yes, I've seen ever. that. Yeah, yeah he, he's kind of like that, but just not nice at all and a little bit more sinister. Um, and I'm thinking this came, I, I didn't look it up, but he, he might have been right on the heels of uh, Last House on the Left remake. I mean, this was a 2010 movie and Last House on the Left remake was 2009 where he was way sleazier. So I don't I don't know. I just I love him. So I think if you're going to have a minor role, um, sell this bad guy who you don't I mean, the movie is not a murder mystery. It's or it's not a mystery. You know up front what's happening. I think it saves maybe one minor kind of twist towards the end, but not really. Like with in a cast where it's primarily two slash three people, you you pretty much know what's happening. Um, but again, like if you're gonna have this small role where he shows up in the beginning, sets the whole thing up. You want it to be memorable. And I think Garrett Dillahunt is the perfect person to, to play this character. Yeah. He plays I it love- almost in a way that's like believable. Yeah. I, I, like, it, it, that's the craziest part to say about it. it. It's believable in a way where he doesn't oversell the, the craziness of what's happening. Yeah. This is just very much motivated by greed. This is very much just motivated by his own. It, it's his win, you know, it, it's his fame and his, his world. And it just involves a lot of exotic animals and no children. Yep. Let's get yeah. rid of the, the dead weight. If we circle back again to the idea that this, this could be as described a har- hallmark thriller, I mean, you know, you, the villain in those, you ca- it's cartoonish, right? Like it's almost, right. it's over the top. And that's sort of the satisfying element of that is to be able to see this coded, no, non-ambiguous character be overcome by people. But the thing that, because Garrett Dillahunt can't just be in something and give a one note performance, right? Right. There are, there, are, there are two moments that really like piss me off about how interesting they are with the performance he gives. And they are when one of, um, when he's closing up the house at the beginning of the movie, he brings the tiger home and he's closing up the house. One of his workers gets injured and he specifically calls out, tells them go to this clinic. They won't deport you. You know, he's conscious enough of, of like what's going on with his, um, with his employees that he knows he's looking after them enough to know that they won't get deported and, or at the same time is aware of the criminal actions that are about to follow and doesn't want to get himself entangled with it later on too, when he's complaining of, or when his stepdaughter comes and complains about the loss of money, the stuff that she, he might've stolen slash did steal from her bank account. He goes on this really long rant about this really long sentence about how, like, have you been doing drugs? Because you know, the drugs affect the inhibitors in your hippocampus and they, and it's just like, this is not a stupid man. This is no. not this is not a, a like 100% evil man and this is not a man who exists devoid of the connections in the surrounding town. Like there are scenes with the sheriff and stuff. They know what's going on with him and it just makes him so much more well-rounded and so much more slippery and it kind of like once you realize that he's somebody who understands the immorality of what he's doing, it makes everything that follows a little bit more horrible. Yeah. Yeah, this movie, like you said, Hallmark Thriller, on paper, shouldn't work at all, but it's got a really well-polished screenplay. It's really well cast, which is key when you only have, like, three major players plus Tiger. Um, and this the way that it's done, you know, it's not necessarily perfect, but the suspense is there to sell it. So it's like, you, it's kind of a trifecta in, in this unexpected surprise of a movie yeah and while we're talking about trifectas and we're on the topic (laughs) this so burning bright crawl and uh bait an australian shark movie about a hurricane that strands people in a supermarket with sharks washed into it perfect right honestly perfect trifecta like to me that is 
locked in a locked in a location creature feature gold play that on a marathon and that's that's a great night but what order oh man how do you even start to quantify that (laughs) what's your favorite animal just just go by that what's your favorite animal just just start there you should probably break up burning bright and crawl because it could be like an exact duplicate movie you know that's that's actually a good point. Or you can play them back to back and just be like, listen, it's the same thing, whatever, but different animals. I don't care. Yeah. All right. We got time for one more question. So we're gonna end the way that we normally do with this podcast. You know, we're always curious with the movies that we talk about. We're I, I think we're lucky to be able to talk about some of these films, especially when we talk about something as good as Burning Bright. Like it's a good, like it's a good movie. It makes me want to talk about it more. This was a miss. It didn't resonate. It's a Lionsgate film. Uh, which means it wasn't something that was, you know, some fly-by-night in independent company, but it has fewer than five reviews. It does not have a ton of, there's not a lot of interview material out there. It hasn't really preserved itself in the internet archives as a movie that people want to talk about. So what do we need to do? Like what makes this, what made this something that people slept on and what makes it something that we should encourage folks to to seek out? When does this become, you know, one of those Terror Tuesday titles? I think that there's three strikes against it um, as far as what caused it to fall through the cracks. Like Burning Bright is not a very good horror title. Like it doesn't say horror. It's it's a William Blake reference right. to the tiger, you know? So I think right off the bat, that's, that's not a catchy horror title. Two, um, the premise sounds outlandish, you know, I think that that could be a major turnoff if you were just to read, I mean, this is it now, I think it could work in, in the wake of Tiger King, but before, um, I, what little I could dig up on it, it, there was some flack, um, when the movie hadn't yet gone into production from, from press about what an outlandish premise it was. And three, it doesn't have, outside of the cast, there's not really any well-known, like, Carlos Brooks, Christine Johnson, and Julie Prendeville Rue. Like, these these aren't recognizable names. So that's my my theory as to why it, it fell through the cracks. Yeah, and I mean, what's crazy to me is that none of those names became recognizable. Just as you said, you know, the filmmakers behind it, the writers, creators, nothing ever came of them and you look at a film that we're describing as accomplished and you go how did no one ever call them back and i mean sure again this the performance box office potential stuff of that nature maybe that that gets equated to them and, mm-hmm. and i mean even to go to rotten tomatoes there's three reviews and two reviews are posted by the same person which oh I my hate. gosh someone dealt like i hate when people double post the same review on two different outlets because like that's not that's that's no that's not fair so to not me cool bro not cool <laughs> anton Battelle. um but there's only two reviews for this film they're both positive but there's only two and this is 2010 and we talk yeah. about all the times where okay it's a 2000s movie where those horror blogs weren't accredited yet but i mean at in 2010 there were plenty of horror writers out there who were putting reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. So the fact that it fell that far between the cracks is wild to me. It's actually 100% crazy to me because I that does not read like a film what I just saw that deserves, you know, something like Mutant Blast that I just saw the, the other week, which is like a trauma VOD special has more reviews online than Burning Bright does. And that blows my mind. Yeah, I think so, for me, at the end of the day, I just like, if I if I learn anything from watching this movie, it's anytime I feel like I want to talk about the pool, I'm just going to talk about Burning Bright instead because one of them is bad but fun, but this is just good. It's just a good movie and it deserves to be talked about as a good movie. Yay. Yes, I agree. I was, and I'm so happy that you both are on the same wavelength. Yeah, I was going to bring up the pool in the comparison for the animals because the pool, I agree, I, I think, is a fun, ridiculous creature feature, but without a real creature. It's animated mm-hmm. the whole time, mm-hmm. and that makes a difference. Where Burning Bright, it's a cut above because it actually has the goddamn animal, and that mm-hmm. sounds so silly to say, but too many films rely on CGI these days, and too many films just animate something because it's easier, and this is why you don't. I mean, Crawl is still amazing. Don't get me wrong. When you have the money to do it right, you can still do it. You can still animate and we won't know. The Shallows, again, same thing. Oh, yeah. But, man, 
if you can somehow pull the practical, it's it's just next level. Agreed. Completely agree. So wow. yeah, we just talk about it and people you listen to this podcast and watch the movie. It's on Tubi. Yeah. It's watch free. the movie it's where? Yeah, I was going to say, watch the movie where? Tubi. It's on Tubi, which, you know, is a free streaming platform. I think you get like some ads every once in a while, but it's not that intrusive. So I mean, I just wa- I downloaded the app right before this podcast. I watched it right before this podcast, and I think it might have added two minutes worth of commercials. There were three breaks, four breaks, and you have to sit through like three commercials of like 30 seconds each. It's insane. Yeah. I had like four or five breaks and only one of them actually showed me commercials. All the other ones counted down. They were like commercial break in nine seconds. And then they just went to the next scene. So maybe you'll get lucky like me. (laughs) So yeah, I'm sure it can be rented on, on Amazon and other places too. Cause I do think that Tubi is not available worldwide yet, but still seek the movie out. I will totally pimp the hell out of this episode i've talked about it on bloody disgusting in articles before like it is a worthwhile movie and that's why you know when people are like snooty about film critics or whatever this is why this is this is why our job is important so films like that are actually worthwhile don't get lost forever so you're saying we're heroes is basically what i'm hearing. yeah that's what I'm, I'm dubbing us heroes of burning bright <laughs> Yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay with that. I'm fine. Yeah, we I'm are. The, the, no, I'm. I'm not going to say where the this is. Came. This is what I was born to do: push burning bright. Uh, there are a handful of people in this world who made this movie that'll be very happy that we exist. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our burning bright episode. Do go watch it on Tubi. I do recommend it. And you know what? Everybody's talking about Tubi, anyways. It's become sort of like the the uh, go to schlocky horror streaming platform outside of obviously Shutter, which is the king of the business. So. Go download the Tubi app, watch this movie. It's a great introduction to the app, and I think you'll really like it. Megan, if people want to follow your writing, and I know you're putting together, you've put together a lot of really good lists, uh, especially over the last couple of weeks during the quarantine. What are uh, what are your social media channels of choice? Where should people go? I am uh, on Twitter primarily, um, at Haunted Meg. So that's where they should go. Nice and easy. Uh, Donato, where- where hey hey buddy where are you where do they go for to get the more of you uh, if, if if you want more of this you can go to at donato bomb on instagram twitter and letterboxd where i will post my writings on such websites as uh, things like slash film bloody disgusting now nerdist now hall creek horror i don't know Where, wherever will pay me pay me money <laughs> nice we'll work for reds <laughs> we'll work for all the reds <laughs> Also, uh, for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. And if you want to, you could visit the new, as of today, Certified Forgotten website, which is www.certifiedforgotten.com. Guess what? It's just a link to the podcast link. There's literally nothing else there. But God damn it, it's a website. And that's all that matters. <laughs> Yay. We should we should do a poll. Like, what do you want to see on the website? What should we post? <laughs> We're going we're gonna to figure that out. Our DMs are full of messages going back and forth, so we'll figure that out eventually. Uh, this is, Megan. This is ri- riveting content for the people. It's, good, it's really good stuff. <laughs> Megan, two things. One, thank you for being one of our earliest guests. And Yay. two, thank you for helping us chart territory again by being our first repeat guest. You brought us a good movie. I really appreciate that. Yay. First of all, thank you for having me not once, but twice. Um, and thank you for enjoying the movie. I was, I'm always a little worried when you bring like a recommendation to somebody that they're going to be like, no, why did you do this to me? So thank you. Uh, but now you, you know how we it. felt after High Moon. You're still figuring things out and it did have some uh, entertaining discussion, but yeah, I, I, I very much appreciate the redo. Someday we'll have to figure out why we thought it was a good idea to pick the movies for the guests. Hmm. Yeah, we are sorry. We love you. You're amazing. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the only other thing that's changed about our podcast since you joined us last time is our exit. Donato, if you please. That what? It didn't change, though. Well, take us out, man.